Section 11 of Mrs. Diamond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kim Dixon. KimDixonVoices.com. Mrs. Diamond by Anne Isabella Thackeray Ritchie. Book 2. Chapter 3. London City. I love the haunts of old cocaine, where wit and wealth are squandered. Lockers, London Lyrics After a few days' loitering journey from Paris to the coast, along a road which is pleasant with limes and poplars and green horizons, and where, if so inclined, pilgrims may still travel from one shrine to another and rest each night in a different city with wonders to be worshipped, and ancient stones still working miracles, the colonel brought his young bride to England. There had been some talk of a foreign tour, of Italy and the South, but Colonel Diamond longed to be home again, by his own hearth with his children and the accustomed faces round about. And to Susie, London was as strange and new a city as Rome itself. She also longed to be at Tarndale in beginning her new life, only she was glad of a little time to get accustomed to it first, to her fresh dignities, her silk dress, her gold ring, her strange golden fate. Was this Susanna Diamond, this newborn being walking with her husband by her side in dignified ease and sober splendor? She used to glance shyly at the colonel as he walked along, at the well-preserved grizzled man, the kind brown face, the gray mustache. He was about her own height, well-brushed, well-blacked, well-starched. All was of a piece, decorous, respectable, and Susie began to feel as if perhaps of all things in the world, decorum and respectability were the most intoxicating. What a contrast to the life from which she had come away. No bills, no troubles, no seams ripped or opening wide, no storms, no daily struggle for life, no Marnie to terrify her, no tears to hide away from her mother. All seemed smoothed and calmed and in order. In Susie's pocket was a well-filled purse and by her side her attentive, courteous husband. Well-dressed people nodded smiling as they passed them on foot or in well-appointed carriages. Susie wondered if at that minute her mother was wearily trudging along the dusty, newly road on her way home from market. If only Mama had married another John, thought Susie. The colonel was not the least of the marvels of this new life in this wonderful London, with its wide garden-like parks, where the trees were scattering their leaves not less freely than at Crowbeck, where the bells came jangling over the housetops, and the birds flew across the horizons of the overflowing streets. Susie had never seen London streets, never driven in carriages, never shopped in her life before. How many things there were she had never done. The colonel, enjoying her pleasure, took her to see the sights, to the tower, to the abbey, and to St. Paul's, and to the pictures. The opera was closed, 
but Susanna went with her husband to the play once or twice, and he introduced her there to some of his friends, who immediately began to call from their clubs and from various resorts, and who had all lost their hearts to the gentle and fair young bride. Diamond had made a most fortunate choice, said the old friends, and they left their cards again and again at the door of the little hotel where the new married pair were staying. The colonel was pleased with Susie's success and wrote home long accounts of their visitors, admirals, generals, brigadiers. Susanna's admirers were high up in the service. Old boars, said Tempe crossly as she impatiently tossed one of her father's letters to her Aunt Fanny. Joe and Tempe had come over to spend the day at Bolsover and were sitting with her two aunts in the sacred precincts of the harem. Miss Bolsover was still extended on the sofa. She had not yet recovered from the effects of the colonel's marriage. Whatever storms and trials might assail the spirit, Aunt Fanny liked her little comforts. Their room was sprinkled with many devices and musical instruments, with footstools, with flowers, and white cats, and Pomeranian dogs, and pugs with silver collars. The sunshine came through muslin of various shades. The whole place was scented with sandalwood and faint patchouli and various drowsy emanations. Joe always declared there was something Turkish in his Aunt Fanny's character as well as in her surroundings, and that patchouli made his head ache. The other prodigal nephew, Charles Bolsover, who did not mind patchouli, though he also rebelled against his Aunt Fanny's silken bowstrings, was sunk back in a big armchair stroking the Persian cat's tail. The ladies were assembled round their tea table. Mr. Bolsover, in a mountaineering costume, was preparing to walk down to the village with Joe. Have you read Papa's letter, Aunt Fanny? says Tempy, jealously taking up her grievance again with the sugar tongs. I can't think why he is so pleased, though I can imagine her enjoying it all. How Susanna must like being flattered. So would you if you could get a chance, says Joe from his doorway. She will never get anything but plainest truths from me, nor from Auntie either, says Tempy, helping herself to plum cake. We will let her know what to expect, says Joe, with a brotherly grimace. Here, Charlie suddenly pulled the cat's tail, and Poussette uttered a meow. Oh, dear, poor little pity, darling ding, cries Miss Bolsover, precipitating herself. Charlie boy, how can you be such a naughty, cruel uncle? Hey, what is all this? said Uncle Bolsover, chiming in. When are they coming? Where are they staying? They are at the hotel in Piccadilly. I suppose Wimpole Street is not fashionable enough for the bride, says Aunt Fanny. The colonel had not taken his young wife home to Wimpole Street. The house was shut up, and the memories that were locked up in the dismantled rooms were melancholy and seemed to him out of time and place. One day Susanna went with her husband to see her future home. She looked up at the great stone staircase, peeped into the lofty drawing-rooms with their catafalques of shrouded furniture, 
She shuddered from the long black dining room into the square dark study with its gratings and dingy rows of books and came away with a feeling of intense relief, leaving the family mansion to its ghosts and cobwebs and to the care of that forlorn and courageous race of charwomen who dwell in solitude and wander from emptiness to emptiness. From long habit, perhaps, they do not heed their own footsteps, nor look behind them startled when the doors bang in the distance. The new married pair had settled down in one of those comfortable little hotels which lie in the center of things and of people, quiet and convenient oasis amid the noisy vortex of Piccadilly, Bond Street, and Mayfair. From Eiderdown's hotel, Susie could come and go and receive her husband's friends and see her sights and complete her trousseau without effort or exertion. It was indeed a fairy London to the girl. Beautiful, expensive bargains were blooming in the windows of the shops all about. Arcades close at hand were lighting up and festooned with objects of every shade and fashion. Hats and bonnets floated from plate glass to plate glass, all triumphant, with garlands and streaming ribbons. Shoes of rainbow colors pointed their silken toes in long procession. Delicate kid hands were beckoning from behind the shop fronts. Other windows were stuffed with gimcracks and trinkets. Nor was she ever tired of the jeweler's shops and the toy shops, which fascinated her most of all. Susie longed for her mother to enjoy all these childish pleasant things with her, and for Mikey and Dermy to exclaim alternately at bonbons and diamonds. There was one of these treasuries which she used to pass every day as she came out for her daily walk with her kind old husband. In the center of the great pane of glass, amid a shining sea of gems, lay two loveliest opals repeating the lights in some tender, Mozart-like color fashion of their own. Between the opals lay one bright star of diamonds, shining with brave cords of sunshine and flashing beauty. Oh, how Mama would like those beautiful opals, John! And how wonderfully that star does shine! says Susie, lingering while the colonel in turn glanced at his wife and then at the star again. How beautiful she was! How well the ornament would look in her thick brown hair, thought the admiring husband, and he sighed with some odd regret and apprehension. Even in his happiness, there was something almost as pathetic in the colonel's moderate happiness as in the girl's simple enjoyment. Susie was not romantic, not touched by any of the greater sentiments, but she was childish and rational, as childhood is, and he was rational and childish, as age is apt to be. September in Piccadilly is a very modified solitude. The carriages roll more freely, perhaps. The pavements are not quite so impassable as later in the year, but if the weather is fine... The parks and gardens are even pleasanter than at any other time. At night, Susie from her sitting-room window could see a distant world, twinkling with the lights of the great tumultuous city, which was now her home. Paris had been but a sad place to her, burning and garish with pleasures which were not for her. 
as she came and went sadly, like a young postulant in her black gown. But London was a home. Here she had a place. Here she felt a certain right to be and to share in the sumptuous life. It seemed to her as if this too, this right to be happy, was among the colonel's many gifts to her. So from her windows, Mrs. Diamond watched the lights by night, and by day she used to look out at the wide horizon, so changing and various where the mists were passing or dividing, and showing the palaces and the workshops, the streets, and the spaces of the mighty city. Beyond the park and the abbey towers, she had seen the river flowing between its banks, and the long lines of embankment, and the dockyards, crowded with the life, with the commerce of the world. All these things she enjoyed and noted as she came and went day by day, not alone, but in kind company, not as a wayfarer looking on, but as a sharer in the great feast. As I have said, she had been taken to the Abbey and St. Paul's and the Tower and heard the city bells jangling cheerfully. And then one morning before luncheon, the bride, always with her colonel by her side, went to visit the pictures in the National Gallery. They seemed stately to her, somewhat gloomy, but splendid and satisfying all the same. It is a very fine gallery, you know, my dear Susie. One of the finest in Europe, said her husband. It is a very great thing for us having such a collection. Let me see. Is this Raphael or Michelangelo? Oh, Carlo Dolce, of course. The good colonel walked on to the end of the long gallery, trying to find some picture to show her, which he once remembered having had pointed out to him by a painter. And Susie had been standing for a moment before the well-known portrait of Andrea del Sarto. She was not so much examining the picture as trying to remember who it was it recalled to her mind. When she looked round suddenly, feeling a glance upon her, and by some odd chance she found herself scrutinized by two dark questioning eyes, not unlike those she had just been gazing at. And as she looked, she knew who it was the picture had reminded her of. It was this very man whom she had scarcely seen and never spoken to. Monsieur Max, the artist, the revolutionary son of her kind old friend, Madame du Parc, who used to abuse him by the hour with motherly pride. During what long afternoons and mornings with Madame du Parc had Susie not listened to Max's many misdeeds and shortcomings, to his aberrations, to his difficulties, his uncertain comings and goings. Susie was shy, and though she longed to speak to this dangerous character, she only stared, smiled, exclaimed, half put out her hand, and then drew it back, once more seeing a look of surprise in the living Andrea's face. His frizzed hair was not quite like the picture, and for a moment she was confused between her previous impression and the vivid presentation before her. Duparc, too, was uncertain, and being also shy, especially of grand ladies, he merely bowed and passed on. What is it, my child? said the colonel as she joined him, looking excited and with blushes. 
I saw someone from Newley, she said. Madame du Parc's son, Monsieur Max. I wanted to speak to him, but he did not seem to know me and walked away. Perhaps it is as well, said the colonel consolingly. These sort of people are difficult to shake off again, once one happens to get entangled with them. I wanted to send a message to Mama, said Susie, wistfully looking after the erect figure of the young man, as he proceeded with echoing steps down the long gallery. It must be confessed that Susanna's youthful mind was intent upon something at that time to her more important than her presence in that solemn temple of art among the painters and their works, something nearer to her heart than priceless heritages of light and solemn aspiration, than the signs and tokens of the noble dead who live still for us as we drift along upon the stream of life. She had a ten-pound note in her pocket. She was longing to spend it for her mother and the children, and she was ready to leave the gallery at the first sign of weariness the colonel might give. As for Max du Parc, walking along the great shining halls, he had no thoughts of gold pieces to spend elsewhere. His whole mind and attention were present, riveted, absorbed. He was at home, though a stranger among these old friends and teachers. He had come commissioned to make some engravings for a French dictionary of art. And, for the moment, his interest and enthusiasm completely overpowered him and carried him away even from the thought of the work which had brought him there. He seemed to be in some Elysium among the gods and goddesses and their incarnations. The mind of Titian was there in its glory. There were the dreams of Turner breaking and dawning and vanishing into space, while calmly serene the golden illusions of Claude were floating before his eyes. Or was it a Velasquez? or a Giorgione, whose chivalrous, harmonious soul touched the disciple to some ambition beyond the common aspect of things. All about shine together with the noble realities, the golden superstitions of art, of religions, and of pagans, and the truth upbears them fearlessly in its generous train. The mythologies of Greece, of medieval Italy are there, Angels sing their shrill songs of praise, wielding their fiery swords and fiddle bows with a fanciful strength, or gods and goddesses revel under summer skies, a whole revelation of past life, of bygone strength, wisdom, and splendor ever present is recorded for us, who pass in turn, looking up for a moment on our way, at the pictures which remain. Max looked and wondered and looked again, and then remembering the work for which he had come, began making his deliberate choice and returning again and again to the types which seemed to him best fitted for his purpose. As he stood half hopeless, half deliberate, before the Giorgione knight in shining armor, he heard a cheerful, somewhat husky voice behind him. The diamond menage had caught him up again. Well, my dear Susie, have you had enough of all this? And young and eager came the answer. Oh, yes, thank you, John. I'm rather tired of it. And now will you take me to the toy shop in Bond Street? Max did not even turn his head. 
A sudden impatient scorn for Philistinism came over this young dweller among tents. Susie and her husband left the gallery, descending the steps from the great entrance that led to the stately square, and then went walking leisurely along the streets to the haven of Susie's desires. The colonel left her there, where she wished to be, absorbed and happy, bending over a counter full of toys. Then, promising to return for her in time for luncheon, he walked a little way up the street, thinking of the wondrous change which had come into his life, and resting in tender admiration on the thought of this bright star which had risen to lighten his somewhat dark and solitary path. Surely, surely it must be for the good of all. His dear and excellent sisters would recognize the fact when they knew more of Susie, of her unselfish goodness and sweet, happy nature. Tempe, too, would be far happier in the end, with such friend and companion at hand, than she had ever been before. Of late, her letters had not satisfied her father. He was glad that she should have something more suitable, more feminine than boys' society. Charlie Bolsover was certainly not the companion he should have desired for either of his children. The colonel had many perturbations on the score of Charlie. Aunt Fanny was naturally carried away by her warm feelings and affectionate nature, the colonel used to think. She had even, on one occasion, hinted at a possibility for the future, upon which the colonel had immediately and most decidedly put his absolute veto. Charlie was the last person in the whole world to make a good husband to Tempe or anyone else. The sooner he was started for life, the better for himself and for everybody else, and most especially for Tempe, who was sixteen and would soon be no longer a child. All these very consequent and rational suggestions were in the colonel's mind as he walked leisurely along the street. He had given Susanna half an hour by his watch for her shopping. Then the colonel himself suddenly succumbed to temptation. Susie with all her youthful admiration, had never gazed into the jeweler's shining shop front with such covetous eyes as did the gray-haired colonel now. He had come to the shop window she had so much admired. There was the star, shining on its blue velvet horizon. The colonel looked, blushed rather guiltily, hesitated, went in, and presently came out with a little sealed parcel in his pocket. And lo, one more planet had set out of Bond Street. As he walked away, he thought of something he should like to have engraved on the back of the jewel. He turned back, not without some confusion, disappeared through the glass door once more, and, giving the parcel to the obsequious shopman, desired that Stella May should be written upon the ornament, with the date of the wedding day. End of section 11. Recording by Kim Dixon. KimDixonVoices.com.